All right, everybody, uh, welcome. Um, this is uh, a temporary facility, as you know, while the, the Cato uh, Auditorium is being renovated. And I feel, as a result, um, sort of similar uh, as I did at my bar mitzvah. Uh, the room is, is similar. There were more people there, though, I guess. Um, <laughs> and they gave me money. Um, so we're here to, uh, to uh, promote a book, uh, Terror, Security, and Money, which is by uh, John Mueller and Mark Stewart, uh, who will both be speaking. Um, I'll just uh, say who they are real fast. John Mueller is a, uh, now a uh, senior research scientist at the Mershon Center at Ohio State. He was until recently the uh, Woody Hayes Chair in uh, National Security. And uh, John, uh, aside from this book, I think has uh, two other books that, that have come out this year, uh, one of them edited. Uh, he had one um, last year, I believe, uh, in 2010, and, and one in uh, 2006, and, and plenty before that. Um, but he's, he's just retired uh, from teaching, so he should be able to pick up the productivity a little bit in the coming years. Um, Mark Stewart is a uh, professor of civil engineering and director of the Center for uh, Infrastructure Performance and Reliability at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Um, and he is uh, also currently an Australian Research Council professorial fellow. I don't know what that is, but it sounds very prestigious. Um, and he's, he's the author with uh, R.E. Melchers of Probabilistic Risk, Risk Assessment of Engineering Systems as well as uh, more than 300 technical papers and reports. So he's coming at this from a um, more uh, analytical, uh, technical engineering background. Um, and uh, you may have noticed, some of you, that last week we were uh, promoting on the internet um, a uh, third speaker from the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, that uh, fell apart. They, they couldn't make it. Um, I would go into the reasons why, but I might start cursing. So uh, I'll be the uh, commentator. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure uh, to leave a lot of time for questions uh, for all you guys. So uh, with that, I think uh, Mark is going to speak first, and then John, and uh, we'll get it going. Yep, the other way around. Okay, thanks very much. Really nice to be here. Um, what I'd like to do is give you sort of, sort of general background on the book and our, our general approach. Uh, dealing particularly with the terrorist threat as, as we see it and how it figures into cost-benefit analysis. Uh, then Mark will be giving you uh, more technical stuff, which I think uh, will um, not be too technical, but will give you a feel for sort of how we approach the subject. And uh, uh, the book is designed to be read by normal people. Uh, there's some technical stuff, but they're carefully placed. The really technical stuff is in endnotes in the back of the book. So it's designed to be basically a readable and uh, approachable uh, uh, discussion. Uh, the book actually began uh, thanks to John Stewart and The Daily Show. Um, I, uh, my book, uh, I did a book uh, called Overblown, which was about terrorism, um, that came out in 2006. And I was on the, uh, invited to be on The Daily Show uh, almost exactly five years ago, Halloween, appropriately enough, uh, 2006. And Mark happened to be watching it, and he said, hey, I've been doing some research papers that really relate to what this guy Mueller is saying. And also, very fortunately, happened to be visiting Ohio State in the engineering department at the same time. Uh, so we connected up, and uh, the result ultimately was this, is this book. Uh, in Overblown, basically, I discussed basically the threat of terrorism and the issue and uh, complained about the amount of money being spent to deal with what I thought was a relatively limited problem. Um, and uh, but. Uh, 
I did not have very specific recommendations that much for policy itself, so that's what we're trying to do in this, 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 uh, this, uh, with this book. Um, what we've basically tried to do is use extremely conventional cost-benefit and risk analytic procedures to deal with terrorism. The same kind of thing that DHS, for example, the Department of Homeland Security does very well for natural hazards. So the, the point is, if you're de dealing with something, um, if you want to put uh, tornado shelters, uh, one of the, one of the probably just had a lot of people killed in the South because of tornadoes this year. And so there's a study basically saying, well, a lot of those people are in trailer parks and didn't have tornado shelters. Uh, if there had been tornado or hurricane shelters, who, would we have saved lives? How much would it cost to put those in? Would they reduce the risk enough to justify the expenditure? Uh, how much would it cost over a period of time and so forth? Um, and that's the standard kind of stuff you do all the time. Uh, you don't put in earthquake uh, protection uh, in places that don't have earthquakes. Uh, and you don't put flood protection in places that don't have floods, but you do where they do have floods. So it's, it's, a, it's a question of, of spending money and reducing the risk and ultimately of saving lives. So anyway, our idea basically was to, to look at that. Of, uh, the original idea was to basically critique the Department of Homeland Security uh, to, to indicate what they had done well and what not. So we were going to look at their reports and sort of look at how they fit in. We might argue that some the, the estimates they made were off uh, or the, the judgments they made were questionable and other ones probably really quite on the button. Um, and uh, so we started looking and we basically couldn't find any. Uh, that basically there was no real report that we could see that really justified homeland, homeland Security spending in the same way they would do it if they were going to put in uh, tornado shelters in, um, in, in Alabama. Um, and so uh, we, we were worried about that for a while, uh, but fortunately we couldn't find anything. But fortunately for us, uh, Congress a couple of years ago proposed that the Department uh, asked the, the National Academy of Sciences uh, to look at the risk analysis as is being done in the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Um, and uh, so they did a, a study that lasted about two years at the Department of National Academy of Sciences. They put together a committee of risk analysts, and they basically concluded that DHS didn't know what it was doing. Uh, the, and this report came out last year, almost exactly last year, last September, uh, and garnered zero, zero press, as far as I can, uh, as far as I can see. But uh, they, uh, what they say, for example, a couple of conclusions are, with the exception of risk analysis for natural disaster preparedness, which DHS does very well, state of the art, they say, the committee did not find any DHS risk analysis capabilities and methods that are yet adequate for supporting DHS decision making. Um, little effective attention was paid to features of the risk problem that are fundamental to the analysis. Uh, in a number of cases, they said it's not clear what problem is be even being addressed. Uh, this was not exactly a, a report card. Um, and uh, we also ran across a, a statement by James Thompson of the Rand Corporation in 2007, which also indicated maybe how things were being done. He said, DHS leaders managed by inbox with the dominant mode of DHS behavior becoming, being crisis management. Most programs are implemented with little or no evaluation of their performance or effectiveness, and the agency receives little analytical advice on issues of budget, program, and budget. Um, okay, I don't know, you know, we don't know all the ins and outs about DHS, but what we tried to do in this book is to apply these techniques, as I indicated, to the, uh, to the risk uh, problem in, in Homeland Security. As Mark will point out, since 9-11, the increase of expenditures uh, in the United States, DHS and other agencies, probably totals, accumulates to a trillion dollars since 9-11. 
So even in Washington, a trillion dollars is a lot of money. Um, and uh, the idea of spending that much money uh, with that little uh, regard for whether it's well spent uh, is a major problem. It seems to be essentially irresponsible. Um, the bottom line on this, uh, the top line it should be, is um, not are we safer, but how safe are we? Uh, and we're able to find very little indication in, in most, most of this stuff about indicating not you know, will this make us safer or how safe are we. Uh, but it's very, very, fairly easy to calculate that. Um, the, uh, uh, using various uh, uh, databases, of which there are many, about terrorism, an American's chance of being killed in a terrorist event uh, is about 1 in 3.5 million per year. Um, now, you may say, well, that's not safe enough, let's make it safer. I'd really feel really good if we're one in 4.5 million or one in 7.5 million. Then you want to say, how much money is it going to cost to actually lower that, that, that likelihood? Um, and we found zero people, uh, we found one person actually, in official position, who ever said something like that. That was Mayor Bloomberg in 2007 uh, when he said, get a life, your chance of being killed by terrorists is about the same as being killed by lightning. Um, and he was then re-elected two years later. Um, so it, didn't, it wasn't the last thing he was ever likely to say as a, as a public servant. But no one else has ever said this in public office. Uh, some professional reports have said it, some risk analysts have said it, some journalists have said it here and there. Uh, but that should be where you start. How safe are we? <coughs> and then, uh, as uh, Howard Kuhnreiter put it in 2002, uh, a risk analyst at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the, the key question is, how much should we be willing to pay for a small reduction in probabilities that are already extremely low? So you have to start out basically with terrorism in that respect. Uh, it's, it is a low probability and limited consequence event for the most part. 9-11, obviously, it was, it was high consequence. But for the most part, it is not, and you have to deal with it in those terms. That doesn't mean it isn't a problem. It doesn't mean it isn't something you should pay attention to, but it's a limited one. Uh, what we found is uh, there is this thing coming out of that, what we call probability neglect. Actually, it's a phrase that's used by somebody who's in, uh, invented by a, phrase, a, a member of the Obama administration, uh, formerly the University of Chicago, Cass Sunstein. Um, and there tends to be a preoccupation with the worst case scenario, which tends to cause people to not think about probabilities. If you're really worried about a nuclear weapon going off in the middle of uh, DuPont Circle, you, don't, you tend not to think about what the probability will be. So it's a way of a, a, a neglecting probability, which is one of Cass Sunstein's main point, points. <coughs> there was also an effort to basically inflate the importance of terrorist targets and exaggerating terrorist capacities. And that's the main thing I'd like to talk about uh, for my few minutes here now uh, further. Um, generally speaking, the, uh, as far as we can see, when they ask what is the enemy capable of, you get statements like this, which is from a, 19, a 2009 report from DHS. The enemy is relentless, patient, opportunist, opportunistic, and flexible. It shows an understanding of the potential consequences of plan carefully planned attacks on economic transportation and symbolic targets, seriously threatens national security, and could inflict mass casualties, weaken the economy, and damage public morale and confidence. Well, it's worthwhile worrying about all that, <coughs> but your average terrorist is not one of those. Maybe the 9-11 attackers were. Um, okay, from the beginning, basically what happened was you got into, a, I think, a form of somewhat, somewhat of hysteria over this issue. And it was perfectly natural. 
uh, as uh, uh, Mayor, Mayor Giuliani said at the time, or two years later, reflecting back, anybody, any one of these security experts, including myself, would have told you on September 11, 2001, we're looking at dozens and dozens and multiple years of attacks like this. Uh, and the, the CIA and other intelligence officers were, were reporting to the press that they estimated there were between two and 5,000 Al-Qaeda operatives at loose in the United States. Um, and uh, George Tennant was saying, without any qualification in 2003, bin Laden has a sophisticated biological weapon capability. <coughs> All those things seem to be uh, like totally untrue. Uh, and in many respects, um, I've been reading recently Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, and as you remember uh, in that story, very famous one, the con artists who come in say uh, that uh, we're making these new raiments out of silk and gold, <coughs> and if you can't see them, it means one of two things. A, you're very stupid, or B, you're unfit for public office. Uh, and so the various officials go to look at there and they can't see anything and they say, I know I'm not stupid, so it must be that I'm unfit for, for public office, therefore I should see things. Um, and I think we're seeing a certain amount of that uh, since that time. Terrorists are found everywhere, uh, and the fear of them is there. Uh, Janet Napolitano is now saying that the fear of terrorists, um, that, uh, that things are worse than they've ever been before, because although we don't have to worry that much about major attacks, we have to worry, still worry about homegrown attacks uh, and lone wolf attacks, and somehow that makes things worse. But let me give you a couple of specific examples on this. And um, in, in the director of the FBI, and, and, and in 2003 for congressional testimony said the following, uh, the greatest threat is from Al-Qaeda cells in the United States that we have not yet identified. That is to say, well, we have to be afraid of things we're not seeing. It's not quite the same as the efforts to close, but close. But then he said, we really do know they're there because he says specifically, Al-Qaeda has developed a support infrastructure within the United States that would allow the network to mount another terrorist attack on U.S. soil. So even though we can't see them, we can see them, and obviously they must be there. Uh, there's been no major attack, obviously, since 2003, uh, so they're either biding their time or they, the inference that Mueller made was not there. Second example, <clears throat> this is a book by Michael Sheehan, a deputy a director for counterterrorism in New York City. And he, and he goes to his bosses, Kelly and Cohen, he says, I told them uh, in 2003 that I thought Al-Qaeda was simply not very good. Under the withering heat of the post-9-11 environment, they were simply not getting it done. <coughs> I said what nobody else was saying. We underestimated the Al-Qaeda's capabilities before 9-11, and we overestimated them after. Then a book by, a really good book called Securing the City by Christopher Dickey. Uh, Dickey explains what happened next. Uh, uh, Sheehan could see that they were taken aback. It was not so much that they disagreed that we've been overestimating Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, but they understood all too well what the public and politicians would react if headlines started to read, Commissioner disses Al-Qaeda. The commissioner really thinks Al-Qaeda is not that big a deal. Uh, if that happened, however, what would happen is they'd get less money. Support for counterterrorism would start to crumble, and then if something went bad, they'd be in big trouble. So everybody agreed that they'd keep it quiet for a while. In other words, they pretend to see terrorists uh, where they weren't there. So that's an example of sort of the atmosphere, it seems to me. Um, okay, <coughs> it seems to me that um, one way of looking at this, and I'll try to bounce this off you and see if you uh, wanna uh, take it, um, is to look to a degree at, uh, uh, compare a, a, a bit with Lee Harvey Oswald, 
Lee Harvey Oswald was a guy who basically did nothing right in his whole life. He was a loser, except on, in November 1963, he assassinated John Kennedy. In other words, he did something right, obviously, from his own standpoint, wrong from everybody else's. Um, but, that, but basically, that's the only thing he did in his whole life. And after, after uh, the assassination of Kennedy, a lot of people are trying to say, well, Oswald couldn't have done that on his own um, because he's so trivial. We can't have a monumental event carried out by a trivial guy. Uh, and so there's all these conspiracy theories about him. But to a degree, that may be the case with Al-Qaeda. It's basically a trivial, uh, maybe not trivial, but uh, small, very small, uh, fringe group of a fringe group that got lucky tragically, obviously, very tragically, got lucky once. But since that time, mostly what it's done is issue videos, threats, saying we're going to attack. They've been saying we're going to attack every couple of years since that time. Um, they've engaged in counterproductive terrorism. Um, and uh, when we got, they, they, to switch my, switch my fairy tales, uh, think about the Wizard of Oz, uh, when Bin Laden's lair was found in May, after he was murdered, um, there was going to be all kinds of information we got of all those computer stuff, the computer stuff that was lifted at the time. And basically what it seems to show, judging from a report in the Washington Post, is that they're spending all their time dodging cruise missiles, or dodging uh, drone attacks, uh, complaining about not having any money, and um, uh, watching pornography. So it's almost like the end of Wizard of Oz. You get there and you find there's basically nothing there. Uh, Glenn Carl has recently written a book in which he talks about we've been victims of delusion. And some of that, I think, is there. Um, okay, let me just uh, conclude with uh, sort of a quick summary of some of the things we, we've tried to do. Uh, and Mark will give you more detail uh, shortly. Let me get the right page here. Um, just very quickly. Um, the, uh, what we find is that when you try to assess the quality uh, uh, of the increased expenditures since 9-11, uh, the only way you could justify those expenditures, if you could argue that these increased expenditures uh, deterred, prevented, disrupted, or protected against uh, four attacks per day of the sort that was attempted on uh, Times Square or maybe one every other day, depending on how you sort of slice it. That is to say, what we're de dealing with is not so much, the, the best way to deal with this in some respects is how much, uh, given how much you're spending on this, how much, how much uh, uh, success would you have had to have to justify these expenditures? Um, we looked at buildings and bridges. Uh, Mark will talk about more about that in detail. Um, and our conclusion is that for, to protect a building, a standard office building like the post office museum in which it's like an armed camp, <coughs> for example, <coughs> the, the likelihood of a major a a attack like a Timothy McVeigh type truck bomb on that building would have to be a thousand times higher than it is at present to justify the expenditures to shore up the building. We looked at airline security, arguing that air marshals are spectacularly not cost effective, uh, whereas cockpit doors, hardening cockpit doors probably are. I looked at full body scanners, arguing that they are not as well. Um, so that, Mark will give you much more detail on that in just a second now. Um, uh, let me just conclude with two things. Uh, one is that, um, uh, well, uh, one is uh, what we've mostly been doing in this book is looking at protection measures, which represent about 45% of all expenditures on Homeland Security. Another 45% or so is on policing. And that's probably where you want to take this next. 
deal with the cost of intelligence and the cost of policing. Some of that has probably been pretty effective and worthwhile, but on the other hand, it's an incredible amount of waste effort. Uh, for example, the, if you see something, say something thing in, in, in New York, uh, generates thousands, tens of thousands of calls a year, and all of which have to be followed up, and none of which has led to a terrorism arrest. So that's one of the things you want to basically deal with. Okay, the final point then, um, the, uh, the FBI, by the way, has received it, uh, in 2008, received its two millionth tip. Uh, we haven't found anywhere near that many terrorists, that's for sure. Um, uh, the, the bottom line on this, however, from our standpoint, is a matter of responsibility. Uh, if you're doing analysis in this area and you're expending these huge amounts of money, uh, it seems to me that this should be done in a responsible manner because you're dealing with the, the foundational reason for government, which is public safety. Um, and to therefore expend the money unwisely or foolishly, unless you have infinite budget, which no one has, obviously, uh, what you want to do is keep that under, a de uh, uh, under careful analysis. Because to do so is extremely expensive in human lives. If you are spending money on something, that, a lot of money on something that does not improve public safety very much, and therefore are ignoring something that would, for the same amount of money, would save lots of lives, that's in very much an irresponsible act. Um, and in many of the cases, DHS may be spending money in a really good way. It may be really productive, but they don't know it, and someone should look at that. And obviously, given this 10-year period with huge amounts of money being thrown at the problem, it's hardly surprising to suggest that uh, some of that money may have been misspent just because, um, just because of the haste of which it's being built up. Um, and that's the kind of analysis that should be there. What we're trying in this book, ultimately, then, is to start a discussion of that, maybe an adult conversation about homeland security expenditures and uh, to anal analyze them in a systematic, careful, and uh, procedure which has been codified for decades uh, in this area. Okay, thanks very much. I'll turn you over to Mark. Ben and uh, thank you John and it's uh, very nice to be here today and I um, appreciate the invitation. Okay, Okay. as as Ben said I'm an engineer and so I like numbers so when we, when we talk about about risk we want to talk about numbers rather rather than adjectives if you have num if you can quantify something it means we can measure it and then, then that means we have a basis to compare in option A against option B against option C. And when we talk about a cost-benefit analysis, we're really trying to compare the risks versus the, or the benefits versus the cost and just see how they stack up. So first of all, we'll, we'll look, look briefly at how much we spend on homeland security and, and John mentioned that it's, it, it, it exceeds $1 trillion since 9-11. And it's, well, it's fairly easy to add up the costs of homeland security the more challenging side is really what are the benefits, right? How many lives have been saved? How many damages have been averted? How many plots have been foiled? Now, that's a ch that is going to be the most challenging aspect of, of a cost-benefit assessment. And we look at two decision support criteria. And we, and we use the word here, support, carefully, is that they give us some information that can help us make a more informed or more better decision. Right? We're not saying that, that the cost-benefit analysis is the be on end all, it just gives us some extra information to help optimise what we do. 
and we look at the annual fatality risk, and then we also look at the cost-benefit analysis. So let's just look at the increase. This is the increase in, in US homeland security expenditures since 9-11, and as John said, that exceeds $1 trillion, and that's above and beyond what was being spent before 9-11. And, and the book goes into great detail about how we get this sort of number, but essentially we have about $50 billion per year spent on federal expenditures, which is really just main, mainly the Department, Department of Homeland Security and, and some, other, some other agencies. We have increased in intel expenses of about $15 billion per, per year. Now this is, a, this is only what is spent, what we believe, on US domestic intelligence. We, we're not including foreign, foreign intelligence activities. Local and state uh, expenditures can be about $10 billion per year and private expenditures maybe another 10 billion. In most cases we, we feel we've taken lower bound estimates. We could have easily have found uh, figures and reports that quote much higher numbers. So, so, so just direct expenditures by the federal government and state and local expenditures is about $690 billion over the last 10 years. Then we start to think about some of the opportunity costs some of these expenditures come at quite, or some of the security measures come at quite significant opportunity costs. Um, one of the most obvious ones is that flying is a lot safer than, than driving. But if airport security measures deter people from flying because the fact that there's too much hassle or you know, it, it means you have to arrive at the airport far too early and then there's all, all the queuing up and everything else, you might miss your flight. There's been a clear spike in the number of traffic fatalities since 9-11, because there's been several reports published now that show that people who are taking, who are taking um, short haul destinations, some of them will be deterred by the, all the extra security measures and would rather drive. And driving is, is much more dangerous than flying, and so there's, a, there's been a clear spike in traffic fatalities. So some of these security measures, instead of actually saving lives, could actually could well be costing lives. So we just need to think about some of those aspects as well. But there's uh, obviously a lot more detail in the book. And then there's the, the cost of the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we've tried to be fairly conservative in our estimates. And we can see that the um, federal homeland security expenses have gone up a, a lot since, since 2001. Um, they're showing some sign of maybe tapering off in the last year or two, but the last year or two we only have budget estimates, not, not actual expenditures. And in previous years, and in previous years the actual expenditures were actually a fair bit higher than, than the budget expenditures. So there's a clear you know, going up. Uh, the same for national intelligence exp expenditures, you know, that's also clearly going up as well. Right now, as, as John mentioned before, you know, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, you can imagine that the need to, to implement some pretty quick security measures. Some of them were quite hasty, but you had to, you know, re reassure the, the public that it was safe to fly, for example. You know, that made, it, that made a lot of sense. But after 10, 10 years, maybe it's time to actually reflect on some of those security measures that were put in place fairly hastily, without much thought to, to some opportunity costs and so on. 
to say, well, you know, do we still need some of those security measures? Can we wind some of them back? Or, or after 10 years, how, how effective have they been? We've had 10 years of experience, how effective have they been? So, um, so the question is, is the Department of Homeland home Security, is it risk averse? Right? And, as, as, and, and, and as John mentioned, does that mean that we're spending money in one area without, which may not have the same life-saving potential as other government areas? And, and be fair, the US isn't, isn't alone in this. I mean, Australia, Canada, the UK have also significantly increased expenditures since 9-11, since but not the extent of the US. Uh, for example, the British have increased expenditures by about 50% of what the US has, based on a per capita or per GDP. And you could argue that, that, that the British face a much higher threat, both before 9-11 as, well as, as, as well as after, than, than the US. So the, the, the US seems very much an outlier in terms of how much is being spent on homeland security. Okay, so let's look at risk. Risk, you know, in, in the conventional term is just the probability times the consequence, which gives us like an expected loss. And that could be, you know, fatalities per year or you know, dollars per year. And that's consistent with you know, international and you know, American and Australian practices. There's, there's nothing controversial about this. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a stock standard definition for risk. So in our calculations, we've made some assumptions. And the first thing is that although the calculations are relatively simple, I think there's, there's really only one equation, and that's the equation you saw on, 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 the, on the previous slide. It's really a starting point, right, to get a feel for where we think we are in terms of what are the costs, what are the benefits, what are the risks. Right? In a sense, to get some to get some ballpark figures, you can go into much more detail to, to, to hone in on those later on if the data um, uh, is available. But, but essentially, it's very it's very very transparent. Right? If you don't like a number of used, if you don't like one of the assumptions, you can you can plug in your own number and see if that gives you a different outcome. So that's one of the big benefits of a quantified risk assessment approach is it's very transparent. And every number you put has to be justified based on historical results or predictions or, or something like that. Is it up there? No? The other thing we, we oh, is it up there? The other assumptions that we've made is that we've tried to be quite conservative in, in, in the numbers that we pick. So when we try and look, so we, when we look at the cost of security expenditures over the last 10 years that we used in our cost benefit analysis, we don't use the trillion dollars. Right? We don't include opportunity costs. When you look at direct costs to the federal government, which is the, 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 the um, direct costs, state, state and local expenditures, and national intelligence costs. So we've tried to err on the lower side rather than picking some extremely high value.
Uh, okay, I don't have any notes. So <laughs> Normally the uh, PowerPoint is my, is my crux. That's what, I'm, uh, that's what I rely, rely upon for these things. So, so the results that um, John mentioned before, we, we, we clearly show that the probability of attack has to be so high, you know, as, as to four attacks per day for something like a Times Square bomber. To show that to show that about seventy five billion dollars per year of U.S. homeland security expenditure is something which is a which is a good investment. Ah, here we go. That's great. Okay, thanks. Okay, you know we recognise in the, in these sort of calculations that not every single not everything not everything can be can be quantified, which is why we we, we, we say that these sort of numbers can help inform a decision. It won't make it for you. If a number is, is X, it doesn't mean you do something. If it's Y, you, you do something else. It just gives you some extra additional information. Now, risk aversion is something that, that's very important in risk assessment, and many many individuals in the public are, are obviously very risk averse to terrorism. A death from terrorism is seen as a lot worse than a death from, from a car accident or, you know, or being killed in a, in a bathtub or, or something like that. But if you're spending public money, then you should be risk neutral. And that's and any cost-benefit analysis should be risk-neutral. We use mean values of risk, what we think the average risk is going to be, rather rather than extreme worst-case scenarios or, or or overly pessimistic scenarios. Okay, so this is a, this is a table from the book where we look at a comparison of annual annual fatality risks from you know, everyday activities such as um, you know traffic accidents. You know, towards the top is about one in eight thousand probably being killed per year in the US. It's, it's a bit less in Australia or Canada. And as we move further down, you start to see some of the fatality rates from terrorism. And this is where uh, John mentioned that probably being killed in it by terrorists in the last 28 years in the United States is about one in 3.5 million. In Australia, it's about one in seven million if we include the Bali attacks, even though the Bali attacks occurred outside of Australia, that was seen by many of us as sort of in our backyard in a sense, and particularly when so, so many Australians were killed. So at least you know, this gives us a, a bit of a feel for, for what the actual risks are. The question is, are those risks acceptable, particularly from terrorism? And that's a controversial area in risk assessment, but there's, pretty well, there's a lot of consensus that a fatality risk of about one in a million or something less is something that we would see as acceptable, or maybe not acceptable, but something that is tolerable, something we, that, that, that we would tolerate. An example, in the nuclear industry, this is the target that they would have. So we start to, to draw, draw the line across there as to where that one in one million is. You see that terrorism risks are all much less than one in a million death rate per year. So that would tell me that Essentially, terrorism seems to pose little risk compared to all the, other, all the other hazards that we are exposed to. So the question is, well, okay, so what's the problem? Why are we spending so much money to make that risk perhaps even lower? And the answer to that, of course, is that with you know, terrorism isn't the same as a traffic accident, there's large economic damages and consequences and other indirect effects that we don't get with many other in a sense, more mundane hazards. So that's where you start one, you might want to go to the next step and say, well, let's do a, do, do a cost benefit assessment. And we really try to calculate the net benefit. 
Right, and the net benefit, in very simple terms, is what's the, what's the risk, which is the attack probability times the loss. And then if we spend money on, on security by having you know, additional security measures, that will reduce the risk. So the reduction in risk times the expected loss is our benefit in terms of you know, we've saved lives or we've reduced damage losses by, by so much. And the other side of the equation is really just the, the costs. So you obviously want your benefits to exceed the costs. And you obviously want them to exceed it by a fair amount because then you know that it's clearly going to be cost effective. So there's, there's nothing particularly magical there. This is just a stock standard equation. Now the challenging part to, to calculate is really what's the risk reduction? And so if you're going to have a, an extra layer of security, so for example, we're going, to have, we're going to have these full body scanners at airports, how much does that reduce the risk? Does it reduce the risk by 1%, 10%, 60%, 99.9%? It's really important to get a feel for how much reduction we're actually going to get. Now, you know, as an engineer and, and someone who works in risk, I could easily convert that to 100 equations just like that. Okay, so, but we'll just keep it really, really, really simple for the, for the purpose of this. And as John said, we've looked at uh, aviation security, buildings and bridges. Today I'll just focus on, on, on the overall budget and see how that, comp how that compares. So risk reduction. Pre-9-11, many of those security measures in place before 9-11 were actually quite effective. It wasn't like terrorism was a completely new, new hazard that, or threat that came out of nowhere. You know, there was a fair number of people in the US working, working on in that area. Generally, what's most effective tends to be implemented first. That's, that's, that's the way most, most systems tend to operate. And since 9-11, and, and many terrorist plots have been foiled by tip-offs to the public by the public or the public actually intervening and actually stopping something, which has happened with some of the uh, potential suicide bombers on, on aircraft. It wasn't air marshals, it was the passengers, particularly the passengers, who noticed something and acted quickly. Right? And that comes essentially at no cost or very, or very low cost. So we've basically assumed that you know, many of the measures before 9-11 were actually quite effective. And that probably reduced the risk by about 50%. Particularly when we have statements such as from the New York Deputy Commissioner on Counterterrorism, who basically said that most of, the effect, most of the measures in place before 9-11 were the most effective measures to stopping terrorists. But let's assume for the, for the sake of convenience that, the, that since 9-11 the extra security measures have reduced the remaining risk by an extra 45%, so the total risk reduction is now 95%. So 19 out of 20 terrorist plots are being deterred or prevented or being foiled. Now, if you want, you can make that you can make that 99% or 99.99%. It hardly changes the results you'll see in the next few few slides. The losses from terrorism is since easier to easier to count, and the 9/11 is about 200 million dollars. Most of it is, is indirect losses. Right? The, the, the loss of life and the direct physical damage to the, to the buildings is relatively minor compared to the indirect losses. And that's a feature of many terrorist attacks. Right? And that's why we, the scene is somehow different from 
a traffic fatality or some other more, more mundane mode of death. But even, but it's easy to, over, to in a sense, overestimate these, these, these numbers. So the, the attacks on the London Underground in 2005 is about $5 billion, and that's, and that's an upper bound estimate. So we don't want to get carried away with these, with these losses, particularly when, when many of the losses can be caused by, by overreaction. And, and as you show in the book, actually, if you just look at, at uh, recent well, terrorist attacks over the last 20 to 30 years, most of, them, most of them cause one or two deaths maximum and about a million dollars worth of damage or, or, or less. So, so there's a lot more duds than those that are successful in the terms of causing mass damage and, ma and mass casualties. So we, we, we just need to keep that in mind. Security costs, we're just focusing on uh, government expenditures, uh, state, local and federal. Right? And, and we saw that before, and that's about you know, $75 billion per year. And that's above and beyond what was being spent before 9-11. And so before, we've tried to be conservative, so we don't include opportunity costs, private expenditures, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we don't include any of those in our, in our calculations. So we apply our equation, we get this table, and the table uh, on the one axis just shows what the attack probably ha what has this to be. The, the uh, top gives us what, our, what we think the losses can be. And then the numbers show what the net benefit is going to be. So a negative value shows it's a net loss, and those numbers are in billions of dollars. So for example, if we think that there's something like a London-style bombing and we think that that threat will occur once per year, so the attack probability is 100%, so one, one per year, then where they, where they intersect we get minus 73, so that's a, so with that threat probability we still end up with a, a net loss of $73 billion. If you want to think actually what would happen if you get a replication of a 9-11 style attack, then that's about $200, $200 billion worth of damages. Let's assume that there's an attack probability of occurring that might occur once every two years. The net benefit is still $30 billion loss. So to get anywhere near a, a, a positive value, you need to either have an extremely large attack probability or extremely large consequences of an attack. So you're getting most most what we think are fairly reasonable, realistic combinations. You're getting large net losses, right? which shows that, that, that this is not particularly cost-effective. We can look at this another way and say, well, okay, let's look at this other way and, and work out how high does the attack probability have to be for for these expenditures to be cost-effective. So we basically just you know, swap the swap the equation around, and this is where we find that you know, if you're worried about a, something like a you know, London 7-7 type attack, which killed about 52 people and caused about $5 billion worth of damage, then you, you need to be deterring, preventing, foiling, disrupting 33 attacks like that every year to be cost effective. Right? If it's something like a 9-11 style attack, which is, which is gonna be very hard to, to, to actually replicate now, you need to be you know, disrupting, deterring, or foiling one attack every year. 
And the, now the, and the question that we raise is, is, is the threat level that high? No, no, we, we would say no. That there's no evidence to show that, there is, that, the, that the threat is that high and the, and the number of people trying to do that damage is that high. So this break-even analysis really, really shows that you have to have extremely large th threats with very high frequencies to justify spending $75 billion per year on US domestic homeland security. Uh, we, uh, we, we devote uh, one chapter in the book looking at aviation security measures, and I won't go into this in too much detail, but just to summarize just some of the results that we find. Most of these security measures are aimed at either stopping another 9-11 or by stopping a suicide bomber. Right? And these are the main, the main levels of security that the, that the TSA have. And as John said, we found that hardening the cockpit doors is extraordinarily cost-effective. And it costs about $40 million a year, so it's a very modest expense. And so $1 of cost buys $41.75 of benefits. So that's a very, very efficient use of resources. Air Marshals, on, on, on the other hand, is, is really fails any sort of cost-benefit analysis, where a dollar of cost buys only 14 cents of benefits. And Air Marshals cost $1.2 billion per year. And that cost is actually is still going up. So you know, that's a large amount of money, and you're just not getting, getting the benefit for that sort of money. We've also done some work on the... Um, for body scanners, which is, which is being deployed at airports around the US and other countries. And for that, we find that you, there needs to be about 1.6 attacks per year to be 90% to be certain that, that, there's, that, that there's a benefit. So again, we doubt that the attack probability is that high. And these attacks must originate in the US. And there hasn't been any, any of that threat has actually originated in the US at this point in time. The TSA has 20, or they now have 21 layers of, of, of security, so you want defence in depth, right? and, that's a, you know, and in principle that's a good thing to have, but why should it be 20 layers? Right? Maybe 19 will be enough. Maybe 18 is, is, is going to be enough. Maybe, maybe we need more. So this sort of analysis and way of looking at things is a way to sort of optimise how you spend your counterterrorism funds to get the most, to get the most benefit from it. And that's one of the main things we're trying to get, get, through, get through in this book. So final observations. Um, we've, really, we've really just provided a, a framework which is very transparent. And, and if you think that Homeland Security expenditure is worthwhile, then where is the evidence? And the evidence has to be in sort of numbers. Right? How can you to justify these sorts of, these sorts of expenditures? And as I said before, the challenging part is really, the challenge is what are the benefits of all of this expenditure? Right? And how effective are they, are they in reducing the risk? So thank you very much. All right. Uh, do you think we could bring up the lights here? Um, I see a couple people who look like they were resting their eyes, uh, so it'd be good if we could. Um, so I'll try to be brief and, uh, like I said, leave uh, plenty of time for questions. 
um, uh, you know, I, I think one of the one of the benefits. And I, actually, actually, I think I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a, a research fellow in Cato and Defense and Homeland Security Studies, um, and I've been doing a lot more of the defense part of that title than the than the Homeland Security part. So I'm I'm sort of happy I get to justify my uh, salary a little bit here. Um, I think that one of the great benefits of this book is that it makes a, uh, a sort of radical conclusion seem uh, boring uh, in that, and I mean that as a compliment, uh, in that, you know, we're, uh, it's, it, there's a lot of analysis and math uh, that leads you to a conclusion uh, that, that is, uh, we spend way too much on homeland security. We spend way too much in the sense that we're valuing lives much more highly uh, with the homeland security policies than we do in other areas of public policy and, uh, and uh, more highly certainly than we do um, uh, in our daily lives as, you know, we just sort of walk around and make decisions about risk, which we do, frankly, every day, although we might not be conscious of it. Um, so, um, and if we're valuing lives much more highly uh, with Homeland Security policies than we do in, in other uh, public policy areas in our lives, it means we're taking money. Uh, from um, other activities that would save more lives and, uh, and putting them in, into this, which means that we're creating uh, more, more danger and more harm uh, uh, than we ought to, and, and uh, we're, it's a net loss. And, and that's a, you know, it's a pretty bold uh, thing to say, certainly when you apply it to the entire uh, $75 billion of annual Homeland Security spending, a figure, by the way, that applies to the Homeland Security spending across the government, not just in uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so um, I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I, the reason I wanted um, somebody from the Department of Homeland Security here is that, um, you know, I, I, I thought, well, this is, a, it ought to provoke uh, some response. It ought to provoke some sort of intelligent response, uh, something beyond these adjectives that both John and Mark mentioned about vigilant, uh, discerning enemies or whatever it is. Um, and uh, because I, you know, have been writing about this for some time, and, and certainly uh, John has written a lot of the sort of seminal works about stop freaking out about terrorism so much. And I've, I've yet to hear a really well articulated uh, response, frankly, uh, which is sh kind of shocking, uh, given that all our policies are predicated on an assumption that that's all wrong. Um, so what I want to do is just is just sort of say what I think sort of the best criticisms of this analysis are, and then say why I think they're wrong. Uh, and like I said, I'll try to I'll try to do that briefly. Um, you know, first, um, you know, as I just said, figuring out if a policy has more cost than benefit uh, requires an estimate of the value per life saved of that policy, uh, and many people viscerally uh, object to doing that, to putting a value on, on human life. Uh, but as I said, we, we do it all the time in our life choices uh, when we uh, buy insurance or uh, take hazardous jobs. Uh, and more importantly, as I said, the policies themselves make these valuations. The policies um, spend a certain amount of money to save a certain amount of lives, and uh, whether or not we choose to count it, uh, what, the, what, that, what that value is, it's going on. So this objection that we shouldn't value human life to me just sort of amounts to an unconvincing plea to keep those trade-offs secret, and I don't think that's a very good way to, to make public policy. Um, second big objection to this sort of thing is uh, well, people will say, uh, you know, you guys are relying on uh, bad cost data, uh, that terrorists are much more dangerous than the data says, that history is bunk uh, because of the uh, advances in uh, weapons technology and ideology that make more people want to use those uh, mass killing um, 
weapons. Um, now, uh, to me, you know, the first response is that you should be suspicious uh, whenever uh, somebody tells you that history is no guide to the present. Um, you know, it tends to be the best guide we have, the best data we have, the, the best prediction to what's going to happen next year is almost certainly uh, in most cases in life this year. Um, and uh, certainly our analysis of terrorist danger uh, should acknowledge that the last 10 years have included, or uh, we've never had a, a mass, uh, um, a weapons of mass destruction uh, terrorism, terrorism attack that actually uh, caused mass destruction. We had some use of chemi <coughs> chemical weapons, but not uh, that caused uh, mass death. Uh, and that's contrary to many predictions. So why would we want to ignore that data? Uh, I think we ought to be updating our, our predictions rather than ignoring uh, data that's contrary uh, to what we thought before. And of course, that, that view that, that um, uh, WMD uh, terrorism is unlikely um, is consistent with, with what John said and with his other books and uh, with a lot of common sense, which tells you that um, small groups of people um, who are being hunted in particular are going to have a hard time harnessing the sorts of technologies you need uh, to kill people in really large numbers. That historically has been the province of states uh, or insurgent groups that, that uh, look sort of like states. Um, and, if, and if there is a recent trend, and they talk about this a bit in the book, if there's a recent trend in terrorism, it's actually down. Uh, you know, there's various studies that show you that um, there's been fewer terrorist attacks uh, since 9-11, uh, and that uh, arguably even before 9-11, the amount of terrorism in the world, and jihadism in particular, was on the decline uh, in large parts because of the sort of um, extremity of that um, ideology, which is not going to endear itself to uh, anything more than a small splinter of a small splinter of a population. Um, so the third objection to this sort of analysis um, is the claim that some counterterrorism costs are actually terrorism's costs. So um, this says, uh, government should spend heavily to avoid terrorism because our reaction to the attacks we'd otherwise uh, fail to prevent will cost far more. So if an expensive overreaction is inevitable because of our politics or our psychology or whatever, um, it helps uh, that cost, uh, justifies the seemingly excessive uh, upfront cost. And, and again, they talk a bit about this in the book, people who've made this, this argument a bit. Um, but I, I think the, the big problem or a problem with, with this argument is that it, it, uh, it approaches tautology by, by uh, treating a policy's cost as its own justification. Um, and, um, you know, we're here to say, well, is this cost worth it? Um, and uh, try to do something about it. So certainly in, that, in the context of that argument, it's tautological to then just assume uh, that cost is uh, inevitable. Um, Additionally, um, uh, the problem with this inevitable overreaction argument is that over, overreactions uh, like we had, I think, after 9-11 uh, might happen only after rare, shocking occasions like that attack, uh, and future attacks might be accepted without uh, strong demand for more uh, expensive defenses. And, and they, again, they talk about this in the book, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to note that some of the attacks we've had in recent years, uh, for example, uh, down in Texas, um, have, you know, have been fairly serious terrorist attacks, and you'd think that maybe if they'd happened uh, closer to 9-11 or before, you might have seen a more uh, sort of visceral response from the public and a lot more attention, and actually they don't seem to have made a great deal of difference um, in public policy. And also the defenses we're mounting might not significantly contribute 
uh, to preventing a, to preventing attacks uh, and overreaction. So then you can't really say, well, we're preventing the overreaction uh, with those defenses if they don't contribute. Um, but sort of the, the, the best objection, I think, and I don't agree with it, but I think the best objection to the sort of analysis presented in this book um, is to point out that, that counterterrorism has all these non-safety benefits. So the claim here is that, you know, terrorism is not just a source of mortality or economic harm like carcinogens uh, or storms, but political coercion uh, that offends our values and implicates uh, government's most traditional function. And, and defenses against human or political dangers uh, provide deterrence and a sense of justice, and those are benefits um, that might be impossible to quantify. Um, and uh, and they, they might justify what, what otherwise seems excessive and overwrought. Um, now, um, that's a lot of justifying that our sort of uh, sense of justify, uh, sense of justice would have to do here, uh, because as the book points out, we spend, uh, we value lives saved from terrorism at almost an exponent higher than we do in most regulatory functions. So, uh, if you say, well, that's all due to justice or a sense of uh, 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 safety or deterrence, you're saying, you know, we, we're spending 10 or 100 times more on this because of that. That, that seems like a very high premium to pay for, for psychology or uh, our moral sense. Um, and uh, I, th I think this argument, uh, uh, this complaint about um, analysis, their analysis, um, it, it proves too much in, in that it sort of serves any policy said to combat terrorism, uh, no matter how expansive and misguided. You could say, well, oh, uh, security is different. It's different than storms. It's different than cigarettes. Um, uh, and it, we also shouldn't assume that, that the policies justified by moral or uh, psychological ends actually deliver the goods. Um, you know, were it the case that our counterterrorism policies uh, greatly reduce public fear and uh, blunted uh, terrorist political strategy, uh, well, then they'd be closer, at least, to being worthwhile. Uh, but something closer to the opposite appears to be true, uh, where, you know, Al-Qaeda says it, it wants overreaction, it brags about uh, bankrupting us, which is silly, uh, but um, they, they seem to be aiming at overreaction. Um, and uh, our counterterrorism policies uh, seem as likely to cause alarm as to prevent it. Um, I don't think people feel a great deal safer because of this increment of uh, spending in the Department of Homeland Security, um, although I could be wrong. Um, and, and sort of my last point is uh, following on this is that w the thing I like the most about this book is that it, it sort of calls a bluff. It, it, sort, of, it, it sort of asks, well, um, what would U.S. Homeland Security spending look like if it truly aimed to maximize safety against all dangers? And it says, well, if, if we did that, we would eviscerate the budget of the Department of Homeland Security and go spend it on something else, basically. Um, and, and it makes plain that we've made a choice, that we want to chase this danger uh, much more than other dangers, and at the expense of uh, chasing all these other dangers. Uh, and, and that sort of brings me to my only sort of mildly critical point uh, about the book, and I think it, it sort of takes this bluff too seriously. I mean, we say, you know, all the time, we have a language or rhetoric about security policy, which basically assumes uh, that we want to maximize safety with, with homeland security policy or, or anything else, regulatory policy, defense department policy. But I don't, I don't think we actually mean it. Um, I don't think uh, there's actually a big constituency for the sort of utilitarian ideal 
where um, you know all regulatory policies uh, are coming in about 6.5 billion or seven billion dollars cost per life saved, which is you know what the people writing for the Journal of Risk and Uncertainty think is about the right amount to justify the regulations. I think, in fact, uh, our policy preferences and our ideology um, are essentially beliefs about which risks to combat a lot. Uh, and, and which to combat socially and which to leave to individuals or at least to combat socially only a little bit. Um, and uh, if, if we were all sort of agreeing that we just want to maximize safety across risk categories, we wouldn't have anything to argue about in politics anymore. Um, or, or we would just be arguing at least about these sorts of equations rather than sort of fundamental premises about what we ought to be up to uh, in government. And, and I think people tend to believe things uh, about risk that serve these, these prior preferences about what government ought to be doing, not the other way. We want to pretend it's the other way all the time. Um, so environmentalists will tend to believe, uh, you know, most of what you tell them uh, about pollutants being bad uh, because it goes with their priors, uh, just as people who are, you know, opposed to uh, immigration will believe most of what you tell them about uh, illegal Mexican immigrants and, and committing crimes. Um, people, you know, is cognitive dissonance. They don't want to sort of resolve that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the book helps, helps sort of bring out that cognitive dissonance a little bit, uh, but it's, it's uh, I think, uh, not, not going to be enough. Um, and then just, just finally, I think it's worth considering what experience we've had with implementing these sorts of um, scientific decision-making processes to augment or guide political processes in the past. This is not new. It's new to Homeland Security, unfortunately, uh, but it's not new to the regulatory policy in the United States, where since, um, at least since the Reagan administration, even before, we've had this regulatory review process where the regulatory agencies are supposed to justify using this sort of analysis, uh, the regulations that they want to put in place, and the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs says if they've done a good enough job for the regulation to go forward. That's what the process is on paper, which, by the way, applies to the Department of Homeland Security on paper. Um, and in the Pentagon, in the Pentagon, we, we've had since Robert McNamara uh, a, proce a process of systems analysis where analysts, um, you know, from a sort of economic approach are supposed to wade into the budget process uh, and uh, analyze competing weapon systems and see which is the most cost effective and then somehow get the bad ones canceled and the good ones funded. Um, you know, I, I could tell you a long story about the sort of experience we've had with each of these regimes, of these sort of scientific decision-making regimes in government. Um, but uh, I think, you know, the sort of bottom line is um, it works when somebody in a very powerful place wants it to. So, you know, McNamara had a lot of success in the 1960s canceling programs with systems analysis and sort of pushing the military services around. Uh, but the subsequent secretaries of defense were less inclined to use this sort of analysis. Uh, and on top of that, the services uh, sort of learned the language, they learned the lingo, uh, and were able to fight back with their own science and their own analysis. Um, likewise, uh, in the regulatory review process, there's a, uh, a series of articles that have been written about how successful has this been. Have we actually gotten rid of bad regulations and, uh, you know, gotten the agencies to focus on good ones? And it's, it's not a clear picture, but um, as people like uh, Bill Niskanen, who, who's uh, Cato's chairman emeritus, will tell you, when the, the process really works when it has people in the White House who are pushing it. So if they want to kill something, they can use the process to do that. Um, and if they want to kill something uh, that's very effective, they're going to have trouble. So it's sort of when you have the confluence 
of a bad uh, uh, regulation in terms of cost-benefit analysis and a political uh, imperative manifest in a, in a president or at least a, a, a secretary of an agency, well, then you can get rid of it. Um, which is to say that this sort of analysis in this book is a useful tool for policymakers who want to use it, who have pre-existing preferences to go take a whack at the Department of Homeland Security. And I think the question is, how do you get that? How do you get that? How do you get those people? Um, and uh, I, I should probably stop talking and not give my ideas about that, but I think the main one is you've got to concentrate the costs of this budget on someone. And uh, having a competitive budget process, which we now have uh, temporarily in the security world because we have a two-year security cap, is a way to do that. It's a way to form rival constituencies that push somebody in the government uh, to go um, fight against um, onerous policies that do more uh, harm than good.